Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Remus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and A New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Monday, December 18th. On today's show, we'll talk about the continuing fallout of the FCC's 3-2 vote to kill net neutrality, and what that means for mega-mergers like Fox and Disney. We'll also talk about Uber's misdeeds and the future of that company. Later, we'll be joined by Mozilla... Executive Director Mark Sermon to talk about the browser wars, that's Firefox versus Chrome for those unfamiliar, as well as net neutrality and what his organization is doing to keep the internet free and open. And lastly, don't close my tabs, our picks for the best on the web this week. Will, how are you doing this week? I know you're still up north with us, uh, fleeing the fires uh, where you're based in Santa Barbara. Yeah, that's right. And fingers crossed, it sounds like the firefighters may be getting a handle on things down there with the fires in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties. Uh, what about you, April? How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, you know, my my head's finally up a little bit from uh, the net neutrality <laughs> race that I was running last week. That story is not going away. We're going to talk about it a little bit more further on down the show. But one thing I wanted to, to touch on quick this week before we get into the news that you're focusing on is that Twitter is actually taking some uh, real concrete steps now to knock off people who kind of peddle in hate speech on their platforms, right? That happened today. We're recording this on Monday. Yeah, they had promised a little while back that today they would start enforcing new rules. And it's part of this bigger change at Twitter where they have moved from being what they once called the free speech wing of the free speech party, where sort of anything goes and, and it's a laissez-faire at- attitude toward online speech to this you know much more proactive approach to abuse and harassment and hate speech. This is all part of that. Did you happen to see who they've kicked off so far? Is anybody noteworthy? At least somebody from the group Britain First, which is the org that made uh, some of the anti-Muslim videos that Trump retweeted recently got kicked off. And so they actually do seem to be moving forward with this. But well, beyond the hate speech and, and net neutrality and all of the other crazy things happening on the internet at any given time, offline, another tech story is unfolding, and that is the death spiral of Uber. <laughs> What's going on with that right now? Yeah, and <laughs> death spiral may sound a little extreme. Okay, that might it's be still, extreme. Well, but, may, <laughs> but maybe it's not. I mean, maybe we'll look back on this yeah. as, as the beginning of the death spiral. Things are not going well for Uber. And it's amazing because just a year ago, we looked at Uber and saw a company whose dominance just appeared to be spreading unchecked around the world. And now it looks like largely of their own making, <laughs> there's been a series of mishap and missteps and really unethical and disgusting acts by their executives that have changed the whole landscape. Uh, The latest to emerge came in the litigation between Uber and Waymo, the Waymo being the self-driving effort of Google's parent company, Alphabet. So what's going on now? Now there's a lawsuit happening, right, where where one is accusing the other of stealing trade secrets, and then there's all this evidence coming out of that. Can you kind of catch us up? Yeah, and these Silicon Valley lawsuits are great because these companies are so close-lipped, they won't tell the media anything. They keep it 
everything uh, under lock and key. And when a lawsuit like this happens, you can finally get some of the, the really juicy details. And there were very juicy details in this one coming out recently. There was a letter, a 37-page 30, letter from a former member of Uber's security team that detailed some of the practices of this secretive group within Uber called the Strategic Services Group, the SSG. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of like the KGB or something. They mm -hmm. were spying on rivals, stealing trade secrets. It's so nefarious. <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's really, I mean, it reads like, you know, it's like Inspector Gadget stuff. They, they were also doing stuff that reminded me of the Russian uh, hackers. They were impersonating activists, impersonating taxi cab drivers, all to try to stay a step ahead of Lyft and other rivals. In one of the more bizarre anecdotes, uh, the, uh, there's an allegation that this SSG team infiltrated a private event space at a hotel and spied on the executives of a rival company so that it, just so they could observe those rival executives' reaction to the news that Uber had received a big investment from Saudi Arabia. I mean, this paranoia is out of control. Why do you think they were so nuts? It's hard to say because to me, it always seemed like Uber was always going to be dominant in this space, that they never had, you know, that many real competitors. And their real competitor was always the taxi industry, which they upended quite quickly or they haven't completely upended, but they've disrupted, if I should use that word. And Lyft is, is still not, you know, even close to as big as Uber. But yet you have to wonder what have these kind of dodgy, shady, illegal tactics, if they do turn out to be true, what have they really gained for? Uber because it seems like they were going to do well regardless. I was thinking that there must be something else underlying this. And maybe it's the fact that Uber, although it looked dominant, maybe it really has always been insecure in its market position. I mean, maybe there's a an underlying issue with Uber's business where it's just too easy for people to switch to a rival. I mean, the drivers were never locked in because they were contractors. So the drivers could drive for Uber and Lyft. They could switch at any moment. There's no loyalty there. And then the passengers, uh, you know, they can flip between apps. They can call an Uber or a Lyft at any given time on a whim. Maybe Uber's position was just always a little bit precarious. Maybe, but they locked drivers in with all of these kind of car buying agreements and lease programs, and they lock riders in in that you've become expected to, you know, only call an Uber before you need to be somewhere, you know, 10 minutes before you need to get there. If it's not there in three minutes and you don't have Lyft downloaded, you're just out of luck. It's true that you can switch services really well, but the level of surveillance that they have exercised and the, the level of kind of dodgy business practices or, or, or theft, even in some cases, that it seems that they're being accused of kind of outweigh any potential benefits they've they've gotten from that. But it, it might be that they just didn't have the switching costs that other services had. It could also just be that that they're crazy. I mean, <laughs> Or that they have really bad leadership, right? I mean, you know, they were run by, it seems like, executives that didn't have the best moral compass. We've seen uh, their investors and, and people on the board leave for, for making bad comments or for having a history of harassment or mismanagement. It could be any number of things, but whatever it is, the story is not over yet. <laughs> and, and we're going to keep hearing more about Uber's kind of constant mismanagement, it seems. All right, now we're going to move on to a topic that we've talked a lot about already on the show, but it's a really big story. And April, my co-host, has been all over it. I've seen you on TV, April, on, I think, MSNBC and CBS News. You've been on the radio talking about net neutrality. You've been covering this day and night for the past week. Last week, we interviewed Tim Wu, who coined the term net neutrality uh, in anticipation of the big FCC vote. Uh, what's the latest? Where do we stand now? And what are you working on? Sure. So it did end up happening that the FCC did find 
finalize a vote to repeal the net neutrality rules. That means that when they go into effect by the end of January, you can expect that your internet provider will at least be legally allowed to and and might start to begin to throttle or block access to certain websites or charge websites a fee to access you, kind of operating a a two-way toll where they charge you the subscriber for your monthly internet service and then they also charge a website to access you. So they stand to make a lot of money from this. But while that was happening last week and there was all this turmoil about it, another deal uh, was announced, a merger between Disney and Fox. It it just goes to show we're at this moment of intense deregulation and immense media consolidation happening simultaneously. So what parts of Fox did Disney buy exactly? Right. So, you know, this hasn't been approved by the feds yet, but it's a $52 billion deal. And Disney's looking to get ESPN. They're looking to get Fox's kind of entertainment division and their their film and TV offerings. This is not going to include, though, Fox News, and that's because Disney owns ABC, right? And so that would probably be a competitive. That's probably good because I don't think I could take a world where Tucker Carlson was brought to me every night by Disney. But what does what does Disney and Fox get consolidating have to do with net neutrality, do you think? With the consolidation of Disney and Fox is a massive content merger, right? And what they're going to be able to do as this new juggernaut, you know, if the deal is approved, is kind of strong arm Internet companies into you know, certain price points for receiving access to their content. And, you know, we have to realize that AT&T, you know, also owns DirecTV and and Comcast has NBC Universal. And, you know, as all of these companies start to kind of cascade into each other, they're going to uh, shut each other out from receiving content. You know, we're going to see a lot more walled gardens and just them trying to leverage their their power in, in ways that are hard to predict now, but will certainly affect the way you're able to access, you know, the information or the, the entertainment that you want to see. So what does Disney get out of this? Why is Bigger Better here? A lot of people are saying that Disney's getting into this because they want to make a big play in streaming. Right. And they want to kind of compete with Netflix. And you have to realize uh, Disney will now have a controlling stake in Hulu. Right. And so we can imagine a space where Disney has its own streaming service and then you don't get Disney content on Netflix and Netflix, as opposed to actually being a compendium of a lot of different, you know, entertainment providers that you like, just becomes a place where Netflix content is seen, you know. And so we start to see these kinds of, you know, mini walled gardens. And at the same time, there's going to be more incentive for content companies to merge with with ISPs, right? And we might just see this cascade of consolidation because the ISP will be able to zero rate or not charge people for the content that they own. And so you talk about walled gardens. I mean, this is an idea that's been around for a while now. It's, as I understand it, a walled garden is a an online space where everything you see there has been chosen for you or is controlled by some sort of centralizing power. So Facebook has been called mm-hmm. a walled garden because when you're in Facebook, you know, you only see stuff that's within Facebook. In contrast to the open web where you can kind of, you know, go anywhere you want, go to any website you want. But there are some good things about walled, walled gardens, right? I mean, like, you know, people love Netflix. What is so, is it so bad if we have a world where Hulu is a more viable competitor to Netflix or other streaming services? You know, I'm not going to put a, a- value judgment on on one or the other here. But I will say that it probably means a lot less diversity in terms of the people who are able to create content and see that content succeed because the only people who will have access to Netflix audience are those who are making content through Netflix, right? And so we're going to probably see 
a lot more difficult to get the indie cinema, you know, or stuff that is less popular that you really like is going to be harder to find unless they strike a deal with these like mammoth companies. And an important thing to remember here is that, you know, AT&T is also trying to merge with Time Warner. And that's an $85 billion deal that's being challenged by the Department of Justice now for having, you know, implications of being anti-competitive. But if it does go through, that means AT&T, an internet service provider, will own HBO. You know, and so we're already seeing deals with AT&T providing, you know, some sort of prioritized access to HBO. And so it's it's going to to probably move HBO fans to subscribe to AT&T and, and Comcast, like I said before, owns NBC Universal, And that's a big content maker. And so the people that own the pipes are also making content. This isn't the case of that with Fox and Disney, but they're going to be just this massive content player that are going to be able to, to strong arm all kinds of people into kind of doing things that they that'll be best for Disney and and Fox. Is it fair to look at this also as somewhat motivated by just the sheer scale that the internet giants have attained? I mean, now when you're talking about competing for advertising money, which a lot of media companies are, you're talking about competing with Google and Facebook, which are enormous and fast growing and both valued, I think, actually much more than, than even these titan media companies. Do you think that's part of what's driving this consolidation? That's part of what they say should allow them to consolidate. You're right that Apple's actually bigger than all of them, but Facebook and Alphabet and Microsoft and Amazon are all bigger than any of the companies that we've been talking about before in terms of the ISPs like AT&T or Disney and, and Fox. So it's true that they say, well, they get to be really big and they get to make all this money through advertising. So we should be able to become kind of online giants, too. I would not say that the answer to Facebook being too powerful is to make Comcast more powerful, though, or the answer to Facebook being too powerful is to make Fox more powerful. We'll see how this plays out. But, you know, again, we are at this time of massive deregulation, like with the laws of net neutrality and simultaneous consolidation. And that is probably not going to play out well for consumers. Okay, time for a short break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Mozilla Executive Director Mark Sermon. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Mark Sermon. He's the executive director of the Mozilla Foundation, a nonprofit focused on fueling the movement for an open Internet. And as you might have guessed, the Mozilla Foundation is the sole shareholder of the Mozilla Corporation, the maker of Firefox and other open source web tools. Welcome to If Then, Mark. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks. So, Mark, the first burning question that I have to ask you is, what's a Firefox? Yeah, what's a Firefox? (laughs) What's a Firefox? Uh, A Firefox, there's two things that is a Firefox. One is a cute, cuddly little uh, red panda, which is kind of like a squirrel. Uh, It is also a web browser that is meant to empower people and give them access to all of the internets. Right. And so, like, help me kind of understand this, because I see Firefox as, like, 
the number one or one of the biggest competitors to Chrome. It was around before Chrome, right? Yeah, it was around, uh, showed up as an open source competitor to Internet Explorer back when Microsoft basically monopolized the Internet. They had 98% of people on Internet Explorer, and it was the people and the developers rising up to say, uh, we want an Internet that belongs to us. Why was there an inspiration to start a kind of nonprofit browser in that case? Well, you know, the Internet grew from scientists and from hackers and this whole spirit that computers can be something that are tools of empowerment. And the first era of the web in the mid-90s was exactly that. I mean, we went from centralized big broadcasting and publishing to anybody can put up a website. And at the time, Microsoft, the big, you know, the Google of the era, I guess they were, it's funny to think of it that way now, um, you know, they weren't paying attention to the web. And the really a great uh, flourishing of self-expression and innovation happened. And then when they noticed, hey, this is something real, they locked it down, they took over the browser market, they beat out the competitors through their monopoly on Windows. Yeah, and in fact, that was part of the impetus for the for the big antitrust case. They tried to squeeze out Netscape by putting Internet Explorer on all Windows machines, which was like pretty much all machines. It was pretty much all machines at the time, and it, they didn't just try to squeeze out Netscape, they did squeeze out Netscape, right. you know, to the point where they became irrelevant. So what happened was a bunch of those early developers said, we want our free internet back. And so they, you know, they had barely any money and they worked with people around the world to put together an open source browser that snuck up on Microsoft because they had got kind of lazy because they were a monopoly. And so something faster, the block pop-up ads, people wanted it and people also were ready to, to kind of stick it to them a little bit. Um, so that was a different era, but it was a revolutionary browser of the time. So what happened? How did Chrome overtake you guys? Because, you know, Google Chrome kind of came out of nowhere. Its big thing was speed. One competitive edge, if I recall correctly, and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, was that it would preload pages before you even clicked on them. Uh, how did they get past you? And where does Mozilla and Firefox stand today in that race? Well, there's a funny story just to, to kind of bridge from that, which is what's the best version of Firefox ever released? Okay, what's the best version of Firefox? I don't Firefox know. What is released? it? Because I just probably update it when it tells me to. <laughs> no, no, no. The best version of Firefox ever released was Internet Explorer 7. And, you know, the, the joke <laughs> Joke's is... Joke's funny probably to five people. Yeah, funny to people, <laughs> right? So, ha, ha, ha. But Internet Explorer 6 was the one that sat forever. And uh-huh. the idea of Firefox was to, to promote competition and web standards. Mm-hmm. So... You know, Chrome is a victory for Firefox. Safari is a victory for Firefox. The idea nice. was we really wanted this not to be a closed marketplace. So that, you know, that that's part of the story is we hoped there would be competition. Then, of course, Chrome did jump ahead in popularity and, and, and in speed and popularity with developers. Um, so that wasn't quite what we wanted, although we did want competition. It took us sort of, sort of saying, okay, let's modernize the browser in the last couple of years. And also let's go back to our core values because we'd really just become, many people thought of us as just the browser. And so we spent the last two years completely rebuilding Firefox to something that is really, really fast. Uh, it's re-architected from the ground up and it just came out Firefox Quantum in the last month uh, and people love it. But more importantly, we went back to privacy, to standing up for the user, to a bunch of things that we really wanted to put to the forefront. And that is what makes us different than Chrome. Chrome is something where, you know, you're logged into everything in, in Google and everything that you do is being tracked. So, you know, that was a, a thing we needed to do to jump back 
into some, a, a position where we were an alternative to Chrome. The new browser is really fast. Um, and I mean, I mostly use Chrome still, but I'm starting to use Firefox more. I, I'm curious, like, the the big improvements, how is that all funded? And how, how is Firefox funded? You know, is it is it mostly donations based? It's it's a nonprofit model, right? Well, it's, it's a hybrid, actually. It started out as a nonprofit. This set of people who were, you know, going to take on Microsoft, what are they going to do other than take donations and, you know, work, bring volunteers to the table, which they did. But mm-hmm. it turns out when you make something popular, Firefox just grew, you know, exponentially, you know, up to about 350, 400 million users at its peak. There is revenue to be had from that. So the browser side really works as a social enterprise, mostly off advertising revenue from search in the in the same way that much of the money on the internet is made. So revenue from Google or Yahoo or mm-hmm. Yandex or all of these folks is shared back with Firefox. And then there is still a nonprofit side, and that's actually where I focus, which is the movement building side of what we do. So we're out there in the market with a browser that has an ethical product, but we also believe we need to mobilize the citizens of the internet because you know, we've got problems bigger than, you know, bigger than fighting Chrome. We've got uh, the U.S. government undermining net neutrality. We've Mm -hmm. got governments cutting and shutting down the internet all over the world. So the philanthropic revenue we raise, as well as some of the proceeds from Firefox, go into that activist side. Right. And I see Firefox as kind of at the helm of a lot of the kind of internet human rights or like making the internet better for users movement. And embracing yeah, and embracing new web standards that are that everybody can use, right? As opposed to proprietary stuff that's developed by Google or Apple or whomever. Yeah, certainly that standard side absolutely is the core of of where we've come from, and where we've started to go is the idea that you also need citizens to do more than just technology. You need to talk to their governments. You need them to educate each other. You need them to know what's going on, which is why we started doing stuff that you might not have expected from us in the past. So. In the past, you might not have expected us to run a campaign getting people to send in comments to the FCC, but, you know, we just did that. Or you might not expect us to do a shopping guide for connected toys or connected devices, but we just did that. So really seeing you need both sides, the web standards, the technology, but also the kind of citizen empowerment and education. One more question I wanted to ask you about, because we're on the topic of making money and and the browser wars, there was a little bit of a dust up in the browser world when people saw a plugin in the new version of Firefox, when they upgraded to the new version that had a a little um, magnifying glass icon and they hadn't installed it themselves it was called Looking Glass. It turned out that it was a, a sort of collaboration with the TV show Mr. Robot, a promotion. I imagine it was you know, conceived by Mozilla as a clever way to get some new revenue that people would think was fun. But it turned out there was sort of this backlash to it where people are saying, well, whoa, 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 like I, I use Firefox because they're supposed to be the good guys. And here they are adding plugins, installing plugins in my browser that they're not even telling me about. It seems like you guys are probably held to a higher standard, I would guess, than the other browser makers in some ways. But did you have any thoughts on on what happened there and and was there anything learned from it? I mean, absolutely, we are held to a higher standard and and should be and want to be. You know, the Mozilla Manifesto talks about privacy and and the user being at the forefront, and that's what we believe in. And, you know, what happened with Mr. Robot and the looking class piece, which we have apologized for, for how it went down, is there was a sense that Mr. Robot is something that actually spoke to our privacy-centric users and that a way to sort of playfully interact with that privacy message in the browser could be an experiment in education uh, and kind of getting people connected. And certainly, you know, the way that that plugin was was designed, just like anything we do, was completely privacy 
privacy friendly. It wasn't collecting any data. But it's also understandable. People were surprised to see it there. They hadn't asked for it. It wasn't a kind of normal feature. I mean, we do deploy features that are asking people all the time because that's just the way software updates work. But this was a case where we sort of added a piece of playful content into the browser. And people are like, hey, wait, I didn't ask for that. Where'd that come from? So definitely is something we learned from and is, is not something we would do again. Browsers, in a way, are kind of our shield and our gateway and our everything to enter the internet, right? And I, I just want to know kind of what role a browser plays in ensuring that we do have a safe internet experience. I don't think people quite understand how ad tech or you know, other forms of surveillance uh, interacts with their portal into the net. The browser is how we access most of the net, although increasingly it is apps or even mm, yes. VR goggles or all these connected devices. And so, but the starting point is the browser, and that's why we picked it in a way is, you know, the, the other companies, all of the other companies, uh, I guess other than Opera, but all the other big companies that make browsers, they've got another interest in having a browser and controlling your gateway into the internet, whether that's just keeping you captive or connecting the data that's generated from the browser into the ad tech or connecting you to the operating system with Microsoft. So in their case, you know, the browser is almost like a lost leader um, and you're kind of trading a bunch of your, your liberty or your, your privacy in exchange for that. For us, we're just a browser, and just for that exact reason mm -hmm. of giving you something that is independent, where you can turn off ad tracking, where you can go, you know, completely in a trustworthy way into a private mode, which, you know, probably it's trustworthy in the other browser, but they also have a different set of interests. So that, you know, that is absolutely, as you suggest, a critical reason to think about your browser being independent. As we move into these other realms, it's a lot of what we're um, we're starting to think about. How do we imagine that same independence being something that works in these other environments? So it's why we've started to work on things like, you know, open source approaches to machine learning and voice recognition, so that all these voice devices around you, imagine if they could be independent as opposed to just controlled by Amazon and Apple and Google. Or looking at independent approaches to mixed reality and virtual reality, you know, imagine if we had real choice and independence in that as those become the, the dominant versions of how we access the internet. So the big question for now is, how do you keep that independent gateway, that independent shield to the internet as we go into these next eras? Building your own browser was really an ingenious way to keep a hand in the development of the open web as the desktop browser was the main way to access the open web. Now, I mean, you know, first you had the shift to mobile and then Apple, you know, with, with people on their iPhones using Apple's Safari software or Safari browser, you know, it was harder for independent browsers to wedge their way into that iOS ecosystem. And now as we move uh, toward people accessing the web through things like their Amazon Echo and Alexa and their Google Home, it's, you know, it seems like it's harder still. And of course, Facebook is its own whole ecosystem. You can't just go out necessarily and build your own Facebook, but but could you maybe build your own version of an Amazon Echo or, or a Google Home? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly the kind of question we all need to be asking. So the, you know, the project I mentioned briefly a second ago, which is called Common Voice, and there's a, a set of related components, is about building some of the core you know, foundational blocks of something like an Amazon Echo, which is the voice recognition system, the training data that lets uh, the system actually understand what it is you're saying and get smarter over time. 
And you know, in effect, it's an early open source project and how you'd be able to let people create that sort of competition in that space. And it's early days, and and the people who, uh, you know, the people who've got the big data sets, Amazon, Google, Apple, of things like voice, have got a, a huge head start that makes it very possible for small, impossible for small companies to dive in and, and to compete. So, you know, we're sort of back where we were well pre-Firefox, where we start with an early open source approach and see whether we can build things that others can grow from and create alternatives there. And, you know, in a fantasy world, imagine that we could all have our own local, you know, customized open source version of an Amazon Echo that we control, we said how private it is. Something like that is, you know, at least theoretically possible. And what we want to do is start going in that direction. So at least you can get some competition and, you know, some people can be creating those and all of us can have choice. And one thing that is kind of a constant threat is that we are so dependent on technologies that we fundamentally do not understand. Right. And one of the things that Firefox, I think, has tried to do and has done quite successfully is kind of democratize at least the way we use those in a way that gives us the ability to toggle what those tech, how those technologies interact with us. That said, we're also seeing all of these political battles happening, whether it's about, you know, surveillance or these corporate battles around net neutrality, which and also corporate battles around surveillance. What can people who are concerned about their dependence on technologies, again, that they fundamentally don't understand, do in order to kind of pave the way for a more equitable Internet and an Internet that seems a bit less coercive? Some starting points is Christmas is coming. And two things you can do over Christmas is start to have that conversation with your friends and family. You know, if you think about the environment 40, 50 years ago in the 60s, it wasn't a mainstream topic of conversation. There were scientists mm -hmm, saying, hey, mm -hmm. things are going to get bad here. And it took, you know, into the 70s, 80s, 90s of dinner table conversations and activist campaigning before it becomes something that everybody's talking about. It sounds small. But it really is important for this to become a mainstream conversation. And then the other thing, which could be the fodder for your conversation, is start to think about what products you're buying and using. You know, new IoT products that you're giving to your mm -hmm. kid or you're using in some kind of a setting that, that is new. I mean, we see dolls and watches and all sorts of things coming out, you know, as the connected toys. And that's our, our buyer's guide. Yeah, we put you guys out to help put people. that out, right? Yeah, exactly. And like it's, it's not a joke. You, know, you had these cloud pets uh, hacked, I guess, last year or, or a little bit, you know, 18 months ago, right. which were like stuffed animals that recorded what kids said and, were, and recorded what parents said and said it back to them that you could just easily hack into. They just basically hacked into the, the Amazon Web Services accounts and grabbed all that data. And a lot of these things have insecure Bluetooth where, you know, if you're close enough, you know, within, I guess, 10 to 30 meters, you can easily own that device and take over the mic or take over the speakers or if it has a camera, take over the, the cameras. A lot of these things, we're just accepting like, great, it's connected to the internet. But a critical lens on what am I buying and what does it mean is really important. So those are, you know, those are two things. Start the conversation and think critically about what you buy. Obviously, there's a bigger piece that is more political. You know, if you go back to what you said before about Facebook as its own ecosystem, Amazon as its own ecosystem, we're starting to get back into monopoly territory in the same way that, uh, that mm -hmm. Microsoft was. In fact, maybe even worse because yeah. the Internet is so much a part of our lives. So, you know, getting political about things like antitrust and 
balancing the power of the big five tech companies, that's probably something we should all be thinking about over the next couple of years. Right. So over the past maybe 10 years or so, a lot of people who care about the the environment and the future of the climate have started thinking when they give gifts or when they buy things about, you know, being green or, or you know, being responsible in those types of purchases. And, and I think you're adding something to that, which is now we should also start thinking about, like, what kind of companies are we supporting when we use these internet products? And what, uh, you know, what are we, what private are we sacrificing when we buy an Amazon Echo or a Hello Barbie doll that talks to our kids, that kind of thing. And you guys put out, it can feel overwhelming. You can feel helpless going up against these huge corporations. You know, what can I do? But you guys put out this helpful guide called Privacy Not Included, which was actually one of our tabs on the first episode of the show, I think. Um, So people, our listeners can check that out to see uh, your various ratings of different connected gifts this holiday season and how how much they're going to spy on you. Uh, Mark Sermon, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It was great to have you. Really happy to be here and have a great holiday. You too. Take care. All right. One more quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of our favorite things we've seen online this week. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's that time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, what are you thinking about right now that you just didn't want to close out this week? All right. So usually my tab is something that's fascinating in its own right. It's a, it's like something you can read that is amusing or odd or surprising. This time it's not that. It's just a news, it's a small news item that I found to be interesting and evocative, which is Apple has apparently sold out of AirPods. The AirPods, if you remember, are those little tiny uh, headphones that don't have any wires. They just stick out of your ear in a sort of unappealing way, in my opinion. <laughs> but they've sold out before the holidays. That's bad for Apple in a way because, you know, that's obviously a time when they would hope to make a lot of sales. It could indicate some problems with their supply chain and their their production. But it also seems likely that it means people are actually buying these things, which was an open question when they were launched. I've been sort of an advocate of the idea of AirPods for a long time. I think that they are a way for Apple to make Siri the product that it really should be for them, which is your sort of like, you know, always on go anywhere assistant that you can talk to. It's, it's Apple's best shot at uh, winning the virtual assistant wars or the voice wars, which we've talked about on the show before. April, I know you have some strong feelings about AirPods in the other direction. First of all, I think folks should know that uh, if they're wearing AirPods, it looks like you're wearing earrings and it's totally fine to wear earrings. Yeah, but these are ugly earrings. They're ugly earrings and, and just, you know, just FYI. But the other thing to keep in mind is that probably the reason why, you know, they're selling out of iP- uh, AirPods is because people keep losing them. <laughs> Go figure, right? Like this really small thing that I'm supposed to carry around with me. In fact, two of them um, and not lose. Uh, that's a miracle. So uh, I'm really unsurprised that folks are having to buy new ones all the time who like them. But it's probably because they've they've lost, you know, many. I like that theory of so as to why Apple is selling out of AirPods. That's the most pessimistic take I can imagine. I don't think it's pessimistic. <laughs> 
think it's true. Like, duh. Like, if you're going to sell out of something because everyone loses them, it's a great way to make a ton of money for Apple is to make a very losable product that everybody really needs. Kudos to them for figuring that out. It's not hard for me to imagine why they're selling out of them. No, I love that. And I think there's probably some truth to it. I mean, one of the things that made the iPhone the most valuable product in the entire world was the fact that it stops working after two years and you have to go buy a new one. And when people thought that the iPad would be the new iPhone, it turned out part of the reason that didn't happen is because you buy one and it just kind of works for a long time. <laughs> like you don't, you don't drop it and break it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't stop working all of a sudden. I think that's been a big problem for Apple, Apple actually with the iPad. I'm very glad for Apple that they've gotten back into the business of making things that don't last because uh, that's part of what makes them such a valuable corporation. <laughs> yeah, really pretty things that don't last very long. April, what's your tab this week? My tab this week is actually about net neutrality, just to make sure that we're not giving it a rest at all. And it is by a professor at Harvard named Susan Crawford, super brilliant on these issues. And it's called The Koch Brothers Are Cities' New Obstacle to Building Broadband. And and in this story, she talks about a nonprofit that is backed by the Koch Brothers, the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, and how they have been working in local governments to kind of undo municipal broadband schemes across the country. Uh, to put that in perspective, it's important because one of the reasons why it's so essential to have regulations on these large internet providers is because customers can't vote with their feet, right? Or with their wallet, rather. They can't go somewhere else if they don't like the fact that Comcast is treating their internet traffic badly. And that's because there's just usually no more than one or two options for broadband locally. And here we have a situation where, you know, municipal governments are actually trying to to build uh, locally owned broadband networks. And uh, that's being undermined kind of at the the local policy level by the Koch brothers, or at least by the nonprofit that they fund. I think it's interesting that it's it's framed with the Koch brothers as the lead, because the Koch brothers are kind of like, you know, for liberals, it's almost like Soros is for conservatives. You can, you can throw their name on something and automatically, um, you know, liberals will demonize it. Um, that said, this does sound sort of nefarious uh, that they're trying to uh, prevent local mun- municipal broadband projects. I mean, the argument to be made for it, I guess, would just be, look, these projects haven't, they don't have a great track record of actually working. Haven't cities been trying to do this for a long time and spent a bunch of money on it? And like, what city actually has a good working municipal broadband network to show for it? Chattanooga <laughs> and uh, a few other smaller ones. Uh, but Chattanooga can get a gigabit service, I think, for less than $100 a month now. But I would say that a lot of the reasons why these initiatives haven't worked is because they've been foiled by Comcast, you know, or by these uh, large cable company lobbyists who go in and say, hey, 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 wait, we invested so much into build these networks, even though they often got huge subsidies. You know, it's not fair to us to, to bring in any sort of competition. So it's not just the Koch brothers that are doing this. We also see other lobbying groups on behalf of, of Comcast or Verizon doing this. Um, and, and again, often the failure is, is, is not because cities can't get it right, but it's because they're kind of stopped at every turn by these large incumbents. And I just recommend people reading it because it was really smart and succinct and useful to understanding kind of why we're in the situation we're in now. And just to remind folks uh, who want to check this out, it's called The Koch Brothers, our city's new obstacle to building broadband. It's in Wired. It's by Susan Crawford. All right, that's our show. And this is our last episode for the year. We hope everyone has a good holiday. Look forward to seeing you in January. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. 
You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Mark Sermon, for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at msermon. We also have a favor to ask of our listeners. If you like this show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. It does a lot for helping us get the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. And the more good reviews that people leave us, the more other people will get a chance to listen to the show. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer this week is Laura Flynn. Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Thanks to Jeffrey LeClaire at JL Studios in Toronto. Our fantastic theme music is provided by Doug Chase, and we will see you in January. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.